Hi, welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. On Visionaries, we talk about creativity in the arts, science, technology, culture, and spirituality, and about how we can enrich the world and ourselves by tapping into the energies of the cosmos. Along the way, we talk with some of the most interesting visionaries about the world we live in and the worlds they are creating for tomorrow. Our guest today, Michael Silver, architect, professor, student of consciousness, and principal of Critical Systems Lab. Mike studied architecture at Pratt Institute and Columbia University, and he has taught at Pratt, Cornell, Yale, Harvard, University of Michigan, Parsons, and Ball State, among other schools. Um, you know, I was going to go on and uh, talk a bit more. We'll do that in a moment, but Mike, how are all these schools similar and different? Which schools are you talking about? Michigan, Parson, Ball State, Cornell, Yale, Harvard. Oh, okay. So in, in terms of what are they, what are they your doing experience, in, uh, in terms the, of a pedagogy? Just your experience there. What's it like being at all these you know, leading institutions? Well, okay, so um, today I thought we were going to talk about consciousness oh, yeah. and its relationship to the field. Yeah, so we but start, we want to sort of introduce there. who you are. And uh, so I was just reading off this list of places where you've taught, and I thought, wow, what's that been like? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's great. I mean, I, I think we can link uh, the schools right now to probably the whole purpose of this discussion, which is... Cool. Um, I think most of the schools today are, are pretty much stuck in the materialist paradigm. And uh, it's going to be really interesting to talk to you today about how we can challenge that paradigm and what that means uh, for non-specialists in the general public, especially uh, Americans in, the, in Western culture. I think it's really uh, interesting to challenge that notion of scientific materialism and what that means. So if you look at most of the schools today, we're dominated by um, a kind of techno-triumphalist culture, and we're, uh, have an, we have an unshakable faith in um, computers and, and, and machines, and we have the belief that everything in the world is reducible to materials and physical systems. So I think uh, once you start talking about the mind and getting into that, it problematizes that, that view. So... Uh, what we could, what, what you see in academia today, especially in the architecture and design programs, is a kind of entrenched notion that everything is physical and um, the mental yeah. is secondary. And I think we can challenge that. I think it'd be a really interesting uh, discussion. Cool. Well, uh, just to go a little bit more with our introduction here, uh, Mike has been <coughs> a colleague of mine for we don't want to admit how many decades. And. <laughs> um, so when we say architecture, I think right away our audience is going to picture, excuse me, suburban houses. <laughs> right, right. And we don't do that. <laughs> it's, right. I invite people to stop at any architecture school. Uh, if you log on to, for example, uh, Columbia University, um, uh, Pratt Institute, or in, uh, in for our New York audience, or or whatever part of the world you're in, um, uh, Cooper Union in New York, you'll get the dates of the end of the year show, which will be in uh, May or June. 
and should definitely go and visit it. Some of the most mind-blowing stuff you'll see, uh, people growing organisms, growing architecture, uh, using rules bases and stuff like that. So there's all kinds of great stuff going on, and Mike has been at the center of it. When I would visit Mike's studio in New York, uh, there would be robots walking around uh, picking up bricks. There was, you know, milling machines, laser cutters, uh, all kinds of this, you know, uh, 3D printers, all kinds of really cool stuff. And it's sort of what's in the shop in, uh, in an architecture school. We still have, you know, like a wood shop with a bandsaw and a table mm. saw because the students might have to cut a big piece of plywood to make the base of their model. But then they're going to be fishing... Uh, some 3D printed something or other out of a lot of powder, you know, to, to put together mm -hmm. the pieces of their models. So it's a pretty interesting world uh, we live in. Right. Yeah, definitely the technology is interesting and it's changing everything. And I think that uh, the uh, the schools are at the forefront of, of exploring these new 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 techniques um also the profession has also been transformed by new digital technologies so there's a lot of interesting work happening in the field in in, in my sense the i the the idea of just architecture itself whether it's a very uh, uh advanced kind of design by a famous uh, cutting-edge architect or even really just a simple suburban house you have the impression that um, architecture is involved in transforming the material world, right? And it's about things in space, physical objects, things made of stuff. And um, I took you a long time ago for Khan Inventory, and I think one of the lessons I got from you, especially in your most amazing lectures on, on Khan, that there was another dimension, perhaps, to building that was more, let's say, um, uh, spiritual, more, uh, more ineffable, something more um, um, uh, transcendental than just the physical stuff that that particular architect was um, working with. And I took that lesson uh, to heart, and it sort of influenced the rest of my career. So, and I'm really working on uh, today that understanding that there might be more to building than just the physical stuff. So, so the, I'm the, and the and the construction. Great. So I'm flattered to hear. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, from one of my one of my students, how would you describe that something more? Well, I mean, I guess we could just jump right into the you know the the, the elephant in the room. Sure. If we're living today in a culture dominated by scientific materialism, and there's nothing wrong with science. Science is fantastic; it's indispensable. And basically, my understanding of science is just. Uh, a theory that you experiment and you verify if it's true. That is absolutely, uh, unquestionably, perfectly uh, valid way of working. What I'm questioning is scientism, the idea that science can give you all the answers, and also particularly the idea of materialism. So the idea that science basically um, can explain everything uh, by understanding uh, physical processes, I think, leaves something out in the universe, and that is the existence of subjective conscious minds. So you can begin to like basically chart out the difference between a kind of materialistic, physicalist understanding of the world and one that is um, more subjective. So if you look at the world of objects, they, they're extended in space, they change over time, you can measure them, we can both agree on their existence by naming and labeling them. Um, 
But if you look at a, your conscious awareness, that is, it's completely different. It's not spa- exist, it doesn't exist in space, so it's not like spatially extended. It, it, it's not something I can measure because I could take your brain and um, uh, chart out all the electrical signals through all the different atoms in the, in the brain, but I'll never get a direct understanding of what it's like for you to, for instance, see the color red. Because right. that's something that is only understood, understood from a per- first-person perspective. So here's another thing that can't science or objective physical explanations of the world can't understand. And then we have the problem of, well, how do these subjective mental states re- um, relate to um, physical processes in the brain? And that's a huge mystery, and that's why they call it a problem, the mind-body problem. And I think it's the existence of the mind-body problem which is so interesting because it challenges a lot of science to expand its field of interest, to move us away from the idea that the world is just a physical thing. Uh, that it has to account for the existence of conscious entities, and it has to acknowledge that they are—they are conscious entities are v- very different from physical objects. Um, and so, I think that is an incredibly important um, area of thinking. Uh, there's a lot of great philosophers uh, looking into that, I, like David Chalmers and, and um, uh, Thomas Nagel have been writing about this problem for a long time. Some people believe you can't, we can't solve how these two things relate, the minds and, and materials, but also there are uh, ways of problematizing the way we live by seeing that we're not just basically physical things. So, so but, I, and, but yeah. even before you go on, uh, just so we know where uh, we stand among the materialists, they, they solve the quote-unquote mind-body problem by saying there is no mind. Uh, there's <laughs> right. only neurons firing, giving us the illusion that we have right, right. consciousness. Right. Well, I mean, again, I'm not, repeat, I'm not stating anything new here, but that, that argument has been debunked because what, what, what does that really mean? That means you're not having an experience of something? Well, that's your experience of the color red is the most uh, obvious, most real to you uh, than any other experience. In fact, your experience of, of the color red to me is, is very remote and unreal, so I can only uh, hear about it from you know, reports using language. But the actual direct experience of the world, that can't be erased. That would be saying that you exist as nothing, and then nothing is nothing, and that doesn't exist either. So you can't, you can't really ignore the problem uh, without erasing it. And I think that for a long time, they just avoided this difficulty by... Right. by 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 saying it didn't exist or saying <laughs> saying you're not allowed to talk about it <laughs> or right exactly right so uh, so but i think what's interesting in terms of how this relates maybe to building and architecture is that right now we're in a period called the new materialism where uh architects are interested in buildings as process transformation uh, the the idea of how things are made what they're made out of becomes really the source of the meaning and significance of the work but if that's how architecture is reduced to it, you're, you're losing the vast potential of the poetic function of the building to explain things that are not reducible to those processes and physical materials. And so I think we can challenge the new materialism by, by raising the mind-body problem. And we can do this with materials. That's the exciting thing. You can do this with tools. You can do this with um, modes of expression. It's like poetry, right? You still need the language. You need the, the grammar. But poetry isn't just, just words on a page. There's some, it, there is something else that makes, that, makes a, a verse poetic, right? And that's the art of it. So um, I think 
I think it's really essential that we, we challenge the current you know, thinking, both in design but also in the culture, because if we live in a world where everything is reducible to materials, there are definite cultural consequences to that. And so uh, I think the biggest consequence is the belief that um, eventually you will become nothing, and that begin- leads to a kind of social or cultural nihilism, and that's why we have all these nuclear weapons, because uh, you know, if we blow ourselves up, uh, we'll just become nothing, and it won't matter anyway. But that's impossible. I mean, you can't become nothing, because there's nothing is nothing. So it's very, very important culturally in, in, in the arts, in, in, in philosophy, in the, in, in, even in our use of engagement of technology, to really be clear of what really is the reality of the world, and that reality includes mental entities, and those mental entities are very special, very interesting, and maybe even a little bit bizarre and strange uh, when you really look at it. So uh, is there anything you can tell us about these non-material aspects of our lives? Well, sure. I mean, I think, uh, um, I, I, again, you know, you just have to wake up in the morning, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. It's pretty mysterious what's really going on. And I mean, we think we, we think we can turn ourselves into objects and describe ourselves. But as soon as we do that, you get into some pretty um, strange uh, philosophical conundrums. So I just I think it's the miracle of just being existing, which is so important. And it's important that we understand that because it affects the way we act and how we engage the world and what we make in the world. And, and I think especially when it comes to the development of new technologies in, in design and, and how we structure environments, being very clear about the place of the human in that is extremely important. So, for instance, if we believe that we're just, that we're just computers, right, which I think is an absurdity, we can clearly demonstrate that the mind is not a, a computational Turing machine. It's not, it's not reducible to language. But if we begin to believe that, we become like machines. So, so it's very important what, to see that we're not like that. Right. And that so let we me, offer a very special sort of force in the, in, in the world. Right. So let me jump ahead to something that, you know, maybe people in this field talk about regularly, uh, but maybe you can clarify for us. Um, just for our audience, our guest today on Visionaries is Mike Silver. Mike is with, um, what's the name? Oh, uh, Critical Systems Lab. And uh, I've known Mike for many decades, and he's Pardon me, Mike. One of the smartest people I know. So when I have a question, you know, like, what is post-structuralist thought? I'll ask Mike and get a really good explanation. So since we're talking about these topics, uh, can you distinguish between a human being, a zombie, and a artificial intelligence? Yes. Uh, okay. So, I mean, first, clearly, we can, we can say that basically you can't really reduce if we can't reduce the mind to the brain and, and we have a problem doing that, then it's going to be clear. It's going to be hard to do, reduce a mind to a computer. Um, also, a computer is basically a switching machine, whereas experience isn't a bunch of switching. It's something much more direct. Um, so that isn't to say that we couldn't build a machine that was conscious. It's probably just that machine wouldn't have anything to do with what we understand as computers today. Um, so, so I think that's really important to understand because that means that the human being exists in relationship to its technologies in a very special way. You can't r- erase that relationship. And I think it's very important to be clear 
about um, the importance of the subjective mental entities that exist in the world and how they relate to objects rather than bracket those or push those aside or submerge themselves in favor of some kind of idea of a, of a physical, uh, re physically reducible universe. So that, really that is a really important idea because it affects how we understand robotics. So for instance, if we build a lot of um, machines that are uh, trying to um, uh, alleviate certain uh, difficult, dirty, and dangerous jobs, we want to automate systems, make um, uh, workers more efficient, make um, uh, the processes of uh, producing uh, um, goods more efficient, automation and uh, robotics are going to play a huge part of that. That's an extension just of, of the Industrial Revolution. It's just now we have smarter, more intelligent machines. But intelligent machines don't mean that they have an existence or an experience or a consciousness. It just means they're emulating the behavior of, um, or, uh, of, a, of a particular um, human subject. So, for instance, if you build a humanoid robot and you allow it to walk upstairs and carry boxes for you, you're really not producing a living, conscious uh, entity. It's more like a kind of animatronic puppet, or it's something that you're using as a tool, as an extension of your own body. So what is not being replaced is the conscious um, mind. What's being augmented is the human being. So these, these systems become like, are, are just basically tools. So in a way, they're what I call servant zombies or useful zombies, zombies that help, the, help human beings rather than kill them, but they're not replacing them. So the Terminator model, the threatening robot uh, model, that is a real thing that it could replace jobs and put people out of work. But if we, if we conceive of the human being as not reducible to compute computations, then the human being becomes very valuable. It, we keep the human being in the loop. Machines um, evolve in symbiotic relationship to human beings. And then you have human beings creating more and more intelligent tools. So it's like, for instance, the move from a, um, a handsaw to a power tool, to something that even has more intelligence built into it. It just basically means the tools are getting more complex. You can do more, but you're never erasing the human being. Because let's say you did produce a machine that was conscious, even though it might not be a computer, you could still build some, the body as a machine, so it, it's conscious, so we could potentially theoretically do that. Would you really want that? In other words, if you produced a conscious machine, it would be like it would suffer. It would have a it would have feelings. You couldn't use it, right? Because nobody likes to be called a tool, right? Right. They're on. You're on your own real estate. So the idea of actually building an artificial intelligent machine or artificial consciousness is kind of useless. You wouldn't be able to do anything with it. It would be a lab curiosity, or worse, it would be like putting a human being in a zoo. Um, and that, that, I think, would be, uh, be counterproductive to the kind of the development of technologies we want. But if we understand it, uh, consciousness for what it is, the important role feelings play in perception, and we value um, conscious entities as free, productive, um, and, and creative um, entities, then you have to respect that, right? Because we don't want to create a society of slaves, right? I mean, or, you know, right. which would be what a machine would be if it had consciousness. So actually we want non-conscious 
zombie machines, machines with no, that are highly intelligent, but they have no experience whatsoever. That's an extremely useful way of considering robotics and the future development of robotics. And all of these systems and tools, they impact how we make things. And if we keep the human being in the loop and we keep them in a synergy with, with these devices, then we have a, a very powerful culture, uh, a very powerful force of, of uh, or vision for technological development in the future. Wow. Uh, interesting. So, again, this is uh, Visions. I'm John LaBelle. Our guest today is Mike Silver, whom I've known for some decades, talking to us uh, about consciousness, machines, artificial intelligence. And interestingly, uh, Mike, as, as am I, is a professor of architecture and this is the kind of stuff that's going on in architecture, among other things. And so we're taking advantage of this opportunity together to uh, talk about these uh, broader issues. So, Mike, um, we've talked about this idea of whether or not we want our machines to have consciousness. Let's go back to uh, the idea of consciousness and tell us again what is the hard problem and why is it hard? Right. The hard problem, again, is it comes down to basically the two very different um, qualities of the objective measurable world of physical things and the subjective unmeasurable world of subjective experience. Um, I also like to even think that objects that we uh, observe in the world exist in time, right? We look at the um, we look at the world and we see uh, motion or change. We see uh, a rock falling down uh, a cascade or any kind of bird flying through the sky. We see time, uh, things changing in time in, in the physical world. But can you say that for the subjective mental world, right? Yes, of course, we experience time, but then you don't really experience the past, and nor do you experience the future. These are mental images connected through desire and memory. They don't really exist for a subjective first-person point of view, right? They're, in a way, you're kind of a being that's timeless, right? And Aristotle liked to, liked to problematize the idea of time in this case, and the idea that the objective observer um, doesn't even exist in the present, because the present would have to have some kind of duration. If it had duration, it would have to encompass, it would have to have some thickness, right? If it had some thickness, it would have to encompass past, pastness and futurity. So that's a contradiction. So when we look at the subjective mind, when we look at our experience, we, it's fundamentally different from the, the, the physical world we see where things um, evolve and change in time. We are in a way kind of um, timeless entities, right? Time actually is an incoherent concept for the observer, right? Again, because you can't exist in the past, you never experience the future. And if the future and the past are non-existent from a first-person perspective, then how can there be a present time, right? Presence is, present time is contingent upon future, futurity and pastness. So I think you can begin to see that's a very huge gap uh, between the physical and the, and, and, the, uh, and the mental. And how those two things fit together is a huge problem and a big mystery because we wonder then how is, how is it that, you know, you can exist in a body or you can have a... a uh, experience through, for instance, your, your eyes. So seeing the, how does the signal from the eyeball um, 
and the going to the nerves, to, to the brain, get to this point where I have an experience of the color red. That's a very, very difficult um, thing to answer, and that's why they call it the problem, the hard problem. Right, um, so there are some philosophers that say that it's a mystery that will never be solved because we're just not cognitively equipped to understand how the mind relates to the material. Um, uh, so we could... In, some say that we could just evolve a higher form of consciousness and maybe one day we'd, we'd understand it. But it, currently as humans, we, we really don't understand how these two, how these two things, non-spatial um, ver, versus uh, connects to the spatial, how the timeless connects to the time, uh, timely, how the objective connects to the subjective. These are very, very strange um, um, problems. Right. So we get better and better at, uh, you know, if you look at, uh, Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks, we see that he understood that uh, light went in through the eye, that uh, uh, there was a lens that it projected onto the retina, that there were uh, nerves. Uh, we later understood that these nerves go to the optical center of the brain. And then if we're a fan of uh, Ray Kurzweil, we're aware that our ability to in effect, uh, scan the brain. The resolution of that is doubling every year so that we'll soon be at the point that uh, we won't just see uh, areas of the brain, quote-unquote, light up, mm -hmm. uh, but we'll see actual synapses firing. But as we do that, we still haven't uh, gotten to the point of when does that jump over and mm -hmm. I experience red. Uh, yep, there seems to be a huge gap there, right? I mean, that's right. really astounding. And again, there, it, there are plenty of, uh, um, you know, uh, Dennett, et cetera, who claim there is no gap because the, um, the firing of the neurons is, is good enough for their purposes. Right, right. Well, there are several, there are several theories. You can, you, can, you can say that you can be a materialist where everything is reducible to, minds are reducible to matter, but we've shown that that's very hard to justify. You can be an idealist, right, like Barclay, and say, actually, everything's just the mind, right? So that's one possibility. And then the, the dualists are saying that they, they are two separate things and they interact, but in the dualist position, we still don't know how these two things connect. So dualism and and material oh, they're connected be... by the pineal gland. <laughs> right, right, in the case of Descartes, right? <laughs> right. But, but both of those are problematic. And then idealism, you know, idealism seems to be, I, I'm kind of attracted to it because it seems to, um, it seems to solve the problem in the simplest way. But, but there's problems with that as well, right? Because if everything's just mine, how do we explain you know, the experience of physical thing, things. I like the non-dualist idea that, you know, that these, the, the way we construct how the mind and matter react is actually a convention, and that those conventions can be completely taken apart and dissolved away under analysis so that you, they don't hold up to water. So that, that actually the idea is don't have an answer and don't settle for any particular paradigm, but let all the paradigms exist simultaneously, even if they contradict each other, and then you just don't get stuck in any one view, and you're fr you have a freer, more complex kind of uh, mental uh, acuity. Um, so, but again, I, I don't know if idealism works either. I'm still on the fence on, on that. Mm. So, uh, again, this is John LaBelle with Visionaries, and my guest today is Mike Silver, and we're talking about consciousness, and then we're going to get back to architecture. So, Mike, you described architecture today as being uh, 
materialist and interested in uh, performance and physical qualities. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about what are they talking about in, in the architecture schools? What's the, the current uh, thing? Yeah, I think uh, schools are becoming more and more research-oriented, so that's going to definitely lock you into the sort of general cultural interest or the general culture's interest in uh, industry and making money and building products and, and that are profitable. So, I we think can make research, money in architecture. Well, I mean, I think <laughs> research. You're going to as soon as you start researching, you're, and you, you know, you're going to get into that po- paradigm where you're producing the next widget or you're trying to you know maximize the efficiency of certain process, and right, you do that right. because you want to make money or you want to save money or you want to do a, a better job, but you also have the possibility of uh, making work more higher quality, more complexity, more um, uh, richness in terms of the design. And that tends to become really the focus and meaning of the work. And it, by, by, by basically embracing the whole kind of techno-essentialist culture, we run the risk of losing something where we're not aware of the limits of what those um, paradigms are, are, are running on and what the you know, the, the root sort of uh, philosophical assumptions of those paradigms are. So I think that's what is great about being in the arts is that you can start to um, question and build discourses which open up um, and excavate these assumptions which are maybe buried very deep and they don't, they're, that, that we run on top of them without really uh, questioning them. So I think the artistic um, a life is about asking questions, and you can ask the questions not by ignoring the culture or the cultural trends, but by engaging them. So, in other words, you can be critical with technology by using technology. You could build a building using materials and be and begin to question the uh, idea that this is a, a building that is, you know, seems solid and it's it's out there physically. And we can begin to say, well, you know, maybe maybe that building is me. Maybe that building is in my mind, or my mind is in that building, or maybe that solid feeling of that wall is actually actually illusion maybe that maybe that table doesn't really exist except as an entity that i hold together with certain concepts of tableness for instance so if you took a table for instance and put it in the fire what happened to the table right yeah. i think marcel duchamp did that brilliantly when that, when he turned the urinal upside down right he he turned it from a uh, something that you would uh uh, uh, empty human waste into and, and turned it into what he called a fountain by, by installing it in the museum and flipping it upside down. So now it was something you drank out of, right? So where was the function of the urinal? He completely exposed that the function wasn't really there. It was something held together by, by, by us. I think there's a movement now also to believe in it's a kind of renewed uh, realism about the world, that the world really actually exists independent of human beings. And there's a whole new generation of younger architects who are trying to recover that. I think they're called the object-oriented ontologists. I'd like to say that there's neither an object-oriented ontology nor a subjective-oriented ontology, that both of these two things um, it can coexist, but neither one is actually real. Hmm. So I think in the, um, in the design culture, we can, we can question uh, um, the, the, these paradigms. And one of the things that goes back way to when used to, way back when we, we, I used to take you as a professor, I remember thinking about your presentation on the Kimball Museum. It, it blew me away because the concrete in that building, it's almost translucent. Um, you know, you, this building has these uh, metal light reflectors and the light sort of cascades down the concrete. But this yeah. is the first time I really saw um, a solid material, an opaque material like concrete, rendered almost translucent, right? So Khan, you know, you, we think of him as like 
you know, an extension of the Beaux-Arts and he's about the quality of construction and it's about way things are made. But actually he's doing something that's very, I would say, post-structuralist or deconstructivist. He's saying that that matter that he's composing his building in, it's actually, he's able to dissolve it away into luminosity, which is like an incredible idea. Hang on just a sec before you go on. So we're talking uh, about the architect Louis Kahn, and for our uh, audience, we sometimes describe uh, Kahn as the second most important American architect after Frank Lloyd Wright. Right. And Kahn was born around 1901 and died around 19, in the 1970s. And uh, we, he's also well known now for the movie My Architect, uh, mm-hmm. done documentary done by his son. And... Uh, he's only did a handful of buildings, one of them being the Kimball Museum in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, and that's what uh, Mike's talking about. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's an interesting comparison of that building. If we talk about how Khan actually is, you know, he puts, he's, he, he manages to clearly articulate how things are put together. Materials are expressed directly. It's a very sort of a modernist approach, and we've built up an, a reading of him as a kind of extension or u- ultimate expression of the modernist idea. But actually, if you really look more closely, especially in his mature work, he kind of undermines those ideas. And for instance, in this, the, I'm, I'm so blown away when I, when I actually went to that building by the quality of the light in that building. It was like no treatment of light I'd ever seen. And again, the, the way it it, it flowed through the material. It was almost like the light was coming from within the concrete rather than bouncing off it. And this is a building made with no special effects. It's pretty raw. But yet that raw material of the concrete seems to be almost dissolved away. And the, the effect is incredibly exaggerated when the sun goes behind a cloud and then reemerges because it's almost like the building inhales light and breathes it back and it's almost as if the the concrete dissolves into the sky so this is a vision of material that's so sophisticated and so contrary to the idea that this is solid stuff in the world but yet khan deals with it as solid stuff because he has to build a building but then he's got this incredible other quality in the building that you can't really say is is reducible just to the facts of the material and in fact the way we perceive it contradicts the very um nature of that material as being solid and opaque. It's the reverse. It's a luminous. It's almost emptied out of any kind of mass. It's pretty mm. shocking. And, you know, you can, you can see in projects across art and architecture uh, attempts by um, designers to empty out the mass of a building, make it lighter, seem more ephemeral. Um, but Kahn does that with heavy materials. <laughs> and re- right. you know, he does not doing it with glass. Right? Well, Mies would just like put a glass plane, and that's how you dissolve architecture. But no, Kahn is dissolving the very material qualities uh, of, of, of the building itself. I think that's really a good way to start to questioning, question the idea of materiality. Um, the other thing is you can also compare it, that building to something like one of Jeff Koons' balloon dogs. Right? You know, Jeff Koons makes a sculpture made out of steel look very light by putting it in the shape of a balloon, right? right. So the, you look at the sculpture as, it's, as, if, as if it's very lightweight because you're seeing the balloon, right? It's the sign of the balloon, right? The, it's the image of the balloon that dematerializes the, uh, the, the weight of the sculpture. But that's using language and misperception. But Khan is not 
um, using language at all. He's just using the raw matter, but yet he arrives at the same kind of lightness, same kind of ephemerality, and same kind of dematerialization of mass as Mies and Kuhn's. So I, li I like to use that as a really great example of how you can work against the materialist paradigm, produce very unexpected uh, qualities in, in, in the building and move beyond something that was really just reducible to the facts of construction. And I think that's something we have to be very cautious about as designers and architects as we go into engaging new technologies and, and, the, and the new kind of materials and processes that they, they open up for us. So, uh, Mike, that's really terrific. Uh, again, this is John LaBelle with Visionaries, and my guest today is uh, Professor of Architecture Mike Silver. And we've been just now talking about the architect Louis Kahn and how he achieves a uh, luminous, almost non-present uh, effect with a very uh, substantial material, concrete. And since we're on that and we've been talking about some future stuff, uh, Mike, you've done a lot of research on new materials and bringing them into architecture, particularly um, fiber composites. Tell us what you discovered about that and what its implications might be for architecture. Yeah, I, I, the work I've done with composites, I mean, that's now become kind of a thing. Um, there's several several people working around the world in uh, ETH, uh, Stuttgart, uh, Greg Lynn at, and at UCLA, all uh, Peter Testa. They're all interested in these new lightweight materials, essentially materials that are plastics that are reinforced with very high-strength fibers. And those materials are often stronger and lighter than steel and concrete. Um, they're being used extensively now in aero space. So the new 787 by Boeing, that's an entirely uh, entirely uh, made out of plastic. Um, yeah, I, like to, I the, like to tell people, you're getting on a plastic airplane, they glued the wings on with epoxy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the wings, actually the wings are aluminum, uh, but uh -huh. the whole body is plastic. But, but still, it's true, the, the glue is actually stronger than the bolting it together. That's, that's, that is actually But uh, Tell us what you, what you discovered when you were looking at uh, the construction of an executive jet and its implications for architecture. Yeah, and the, the, there's the, the, the real first all-composite, frameless um, business jet is the Premier One by Hawker Beechcraft, which was originally a Raytheon company. And <clears throat> I used to go down to um, Wichita, and go see their uh, assembly line, and they—it's really interesting because they basically wind like um, wind these um, giant plastic fuselages on these giant robot um, uh, uh, machine uh, uh, taping machines. So hang really on, stop, stop right there. Let's imagine you're you're moving and you're packing a lot of boxes, and so you put the roll of packing tape on a dispenser and you sort of pull it across the seam on the box. Right. And so uh, describe how that's a parallel for this taping process. Oh, so so what, what, they, what they're doing basically is laying down strips of, of plastic, fiber-reinforced plastic, and the, the fiber is very strong in one direction. If you pull it um, along the length of the fibers, it's extremely strong. But if you pull it horizontally, you're just basically... Um, uh, the only strength left is the plastic that's binding the fibers together. So they're anisotropic, meaning they only are strong in one direction. So a piece of steel is isotropic, meaning you can pull it in any direction. It still has the same basic strength. 
so what they need to do with this limitation uh, with this material, because it's stronger and lighter and you want to use it, but it's not uh, as um, efficient as steel in terms of its uh, directionality, in terms of uh, addressing loads, you have to place the, 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 the tape in a certain direction. And to do that efficiently and to do that where you can put many, many um, um, load paths in many different directions, you need a very complex uh, uh, taping geometry, and that's where computers come in. So they, they have these giant robot arms basically precisely laying down strips of tape in the right orientation where they need to pick up loads because a airplane has dynamic loading on it, and so you want to have more fiber in certain areas in certain directions than you want them in others. And basically that's how you produce a very, very efficient, very, very lightweight, very, very strong uh, structural skin. <clears throat> and you do this without needing to put any secondary supports like a frame. So if you look at a traditional building, you have a steel frame and then you have non-structural cladding. Well, that, that idea is completely gone because you can build the windows and the apertures and all of the uh, shape of the building in one sort of monolithic material. And it's very high performance. So you just make the exterior shell and that's it. That's the structure. Right. The trick is now how do you turn that into architecture and how do you turn that into architecture in the way that Khan dealt with concrete, right? A very sophisticated idea because the, the danger is that if you, you know, transfer this to architecture, you end up making a building that's just an expression of that material and that process. So the question I've been trying to search for, uh, search for an answer for is how would that become this other more sophisticated understanding of the use of materials? And I'm, I don't know if I've discovered that or found that yet, but I'm, I'm working towards that goal. Great. So um, is it fair to ask, would you be interested in discussing, are there any architects who you think are doing a good job uh, these days with addressing how to express the new materials? There's a, yeah, there's a lot of people working on um, uh, biomaterials and uh, materials that grow. Uh, you know, there's an interest in biofabrication. My, my worry, though, about that stuff is, again, that it gets, the work gets reduced to an expression of the process. And if there is still a problematic relationship between how minds relate to materials, then any kind of biomaterial sort of approach is still going to leave the hard problem unaddressed. So that's not to say, though, that people working with biomaterials couldn't address that problem, but the tendency isn't there. So um, I find this even in my own work that there's a, I get so deeply involved in a technique or a new discovery or trying to transfer that into a, a building process that the, the, the loss is, po is possible, that, that I'm, a, I'm a victim of my own um, sort of uh, interests. And, and so the fight is and the struggle is to try to expand that in a way that the work becomes more poetic, more critical, more, more about using culture and art as a active participant in structuring a dialogue beyond what the dialogue is structured by, which is you know, kind of instrumental. It's about making money. It's about producing projects and widgets and that kind of um, sort of market-based philosophical orientation in the work. Um, I, most of my colleagues are all involved deeply in, um, in, in, in trying to discover ways of transferring new technologies, working with engineers uh, and different across disciplines to try to 
to um, find new pathways and new forms. And I think their work is really great. And I don't, I can't really mention anybody offhand, but they're all again invested in the search for trying to translate or develop a new kind of language and architecture. My only, my only advice, and I, I hope I can even take that myself, is to be be, be very careful of uh, reducing what you're doing to a kind of material practice and, and not, to, not, to go, not to take it further. So um, we're, we're talking with uh, Mike Silver today about architecture, and I hope that our audience has been surprised that uh, <laughs> we don't talk a lot about buildings and architecture. We talk a lot about some really very cool things. And one more thing I'd like you to address and describe for our audience. Architects... Um, you know, uh, you might have had mechanical drawing in high school. And mm -hmm. so we can represent on a two-dimensional piece of paper not only the completed building, but in what we call working drawings, the steps that will be used in assembling that building. And since the introduction of uh, computer-aided design or CAD, uh, that's been undergoing a major revolution in things that we talk about now, like uh, parametric software, uh, building information management, Internet of Things. Describe for us what's going on in those areas. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I'm, I'm really interested, again, in the uh, field of robotics, but the next, the next phase, which is really going to be uh, dominated by a move of robotics out of the factory and into the, the field and into the, into the construction site. So currently, you have a lot of uh, digital uh, fabrication machines run off of complex computer programs that are shareable across the Internet. Information flows through these different networks. They go to different output systems, so you get like a 3D printer makes a plastic part. You get a 3D printer makes a metal part. You have um, milling machines, uh, foam cutting machines, all kinds of uh, uh, productive si production systems that are then now controlled by uh, information technology. And that's really that's been a predominant um, sort of trend in in the in the field across manufacturing and and building construction. But mostly, a lot of that stuff is indoors. And I'm really interested now in how you know, this stuff get, uh, gets up and walks out of the factory and starts working with humans in the, in, in the construction site. And that's why architecture is a really interesting field for, uh, for, for, um, to consider robotics from, because now you're dealing with existing trade practices, your uh, um, skills of, of, of fabrication and construction. You have workers that have um, abilities that no machine could really automate, but yet are curious and would benefit from automation in, in very interesting ways. How would, for instance, a robot interact with a human being on a construction site is a really interesting problem. Mm. And I think um, it's a very difficult problem. If everybody has uh, looked out at the DARPA challenge, they had a lot of difficult time making the robots even walk across a room and open up a door. But that's really the initial sort of um, move of bringing robotics out of just like kind of a desktop manufacturing paradigm into a kind of co-robotics paradigm where robots and people are working together in a synergy. And I, that's where I'm really excited, um, and that's where my research is focused on at this point. Great. So let me just describe for our audience what what's going on in some of the software, you know, that... that We'll be talking to these robots. So if we imagine 
uh, we make a drawing of a, a box, and then someone will make you know put the six inches by four inches. So this tells by two inches. So this tells the person looking at the drawing how to make the box, how big it is, and then imagine you could do a drawing of a whole floor of a building that way, and you'd have extra lines where the windows are showing the glass. And the next step becomes to tie that to information so that uh, since it's in a computer, that rendition of the window can actually be tied to a database that says it's the ABC XYZ window. And right. so now there's a lot more information in that drawing because it's going on below the surface. And then we get to what's called parametrics so that uh, we're not talking about uh, a grid of dimensions, but rather relationships. So right. that right. Uh, we say, uh, well, let's have a columns 20 feet apart. And <clears throat> then we say, you know what? We really need them to be 22 feet apart. Uh, you simply tell the software, make them 22 feet apart, and all the beams and the wires and the pipes that were going 20 feet now suddenly reconfigure themselves at 22 feet and make themselves stronger to make the bigger distance and things like that. Now, you have to put a lot of information in, in advance to make it be able to do that, but we architects got that from the people making nuclear submarines and, right. and uh, aircraft and stuff like that. But now we go to building information management, and we've got the architect and the engineer and the contractor, and then years later, the maintenance people all using the same, same software. So we hear right. about how you know, an airplane will disappear from the radar, and then they'll contact General Electric, and General Electric tracks where every one of the engines is ever made is, you know, right. flying through the air. And they say, oh, yeah, well, we know it's, you know, it was here and then it was there. Um, we're starting to be able to do that with buildings so right, that, right. you know, we're going to be tracking uh, what all the ducks are doing and what all the AC units are doing and et cetera, et cetera. Is there moisture inside the wall? Things like that. So all these things start to become uh, highly interconnected. And then just imagine we use the term Internet of Things. Well, how do mm -hmm. things tie into the Internet? And the answer is we put sensors in them. That's so right, you, you can right. imagine in the future when you buy a gallon of milk, there'll be a sensor in the bottom that contacts is fresh direct. You know, there's only an inch and a half left of milk. Ship another one. <laughs> it's you know, interesting because you're, you're making a really interesting point about the idea of distributed sensors. If, what is an, a driverless car and a, a robot? that uses sensors to move around and position itself in space and what is a driverless car, but a, basically a sensor system. Right. So imagine all the data coming from driverless cars and robots navigating in space. Now you can begin to use those sensors, that sensor data to feed back into the BIM model. So currently, like these building information models are shared. What's really interesting, they're shared amongst uh, a single model is shared amongst all people in a distributed network. So you can get engineers plugging into that model. You can get the, the shop drawing guys. You can get the uh, contractor, the architect, all sharing this one model. 
But basically, that information builds up over time. You get a very complex and very accurate coordination of the different systems that make up or the parts that make up the building. And then you can make it easier to uh, fabricate it to cost. But that information goes from the model to the job site. What about having all of these sensors go from the job site back to the model? So you would have something like real-time BIM, where you would have um, a, a central model that actually evolved as it was evolving on site, fed the information to the site, and also had site information about its progress in construction go back to the model. That's a really interesting kind of ecology. And you now imagine the kind of understanding of urban space or physical space that you have. If you have a bunch of these driverless cars moving around, giving you real-time information, we would have basically a way of having Google Maps go live. So instead of zooming right. into a map about what Google measured uh, two years ago, you would have what was happening at that time uh, in the present, which is kind of scary also because it's a, a level of surveillance in the culture that would be kind of frightening. But it's also possibly very productive in terms of developing more efficient ways of um, managing all the resources on the planet. We would be able to also manage all that data, build simulations to understand how possible future performance would happen. Essentially, the idea of the extension of the, the automated systems into the world, which would require sensors to actually operate and navigate, is also a way to bring them together to a larger sort of kind of condition of, 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 of data management. And that would be really uh, an unprecedented moment for the history of architecture construction, because we would have a way of executing and uh, designing buildings with unprecedented level of control. And I think that's really always been the struggle is like when you're making something, how finely you can control it and you get the results that you want, or you get results that maybe are surprising, but they're a good surprise. And that all has to do with, again, our question of how we manipulate tools, how human beings relate to those tools, and how uh, human beings use those tools to understand their environment and transform their environment. And that, that's why I think that robotics, when they start moving out of the factory and into the field, they're going to have to, by necessity, have a kind of complex relationship with, with human beings, existing trades, traditional practices, and a much more sort of um, interconnected ecology and not the kind of bleak vision of a jobless future in which everybody is sort of like just sitting around while all the robots do all the work. I, don't, I, think, you, I, don't, I think that could that could happen, but I don't think anybody would want it because in the end, who would want to automate away their enjoyment of life, right? And part of the satisfaction of doing good work is it's enjoying. It's, it's hard. It's difficult. It has some problems to it. But in the end, you know, being creative and building beautiful things and having a sense of craft is in itself uh, a joy. And with a lot, you can't make buildings or anything without joy. And if when we do, we can tell it that somebody did that joylessly because it absolutely looks terrible. Right, right. So, so robots will never be able to replace that enjoyment. Um, and they'll just maybe help us, like, you know, um, especially in the working world, have less physical injuries, maybe do work more quickly with a higher level of complexity. But we'll always have that moment where the worker sees that robot as an extension of their own body. And therefore, the work that they do together is one that they can take credit for and be proud of. So let's, uh, we're going to be wrapping up in a moment, but... As we do, let's just go back to those uh, automobiles, self-driving automobiles, and mm. then we'll take that back to architecture. So you're in your self-driving automobile, and it's got a, you know, step one, it's got a sensor 
that the text that the car in front of it is slowing down. Right. So we're going to have to put on the brakes in a moment. But that's kind of lame. I mean, we should be in touch with the computer in the car in front of us right. so that we know it's planning to, to slow down. So right. we, we haven't even – and then you think about it. Well, why don't we be in touch with all the cars on the road? Right, and we right. know which are getting, getting off at exit 17. Maybe we should go one exit further and get off at exit 18 and cut back because we know that 17 is not jammed now, but a lot mm. of cars are planning to use it, and right. it will be jammed. And so then we – and then, well, how many people are right now planning to go to the ball game? And it's, right. you know, the ball game is tomorrow. <laughs> but right, the computer right. already knows how many people are going and what route they're going to be taking. So then right. suppose we start thinking about our cities that way. And exactly. we don't say, I need an office space. We say, I need to do a certain function. It'll give me mm -hmm. a, the space I need when I need it and not have it sitting empty the rest of the time. Just the way we're about to say, oh, we're only going to need a tenth as many cars because today 90% of the cars are sitting in a garage 90% of the time. But if it simply mm. sends you a car when you need it, you need a lot less cars. So right. here's a challenge for our audience. With this kind of thinking, how might the city and our environment be a lot different? Right, right. You know, it's interesting that if you think about it, if, you're, if your car is doing your driving for you then, and you don't have to pay attention to the road, right, then the interior space of the, of the car becomes much more like a room or of a building, right? It could be a place to read or relax or even maybe even sleep or, or some kind of function that's much more like a conventional um, interior of a building. Right. So I think the driverless car is going to be really interesting in that it's going to be, I, I remember Khan said, right, the plan is a society of rooms. And now you have all these networked rooms uh, becoming a much more interconnected society than Khan probably would have ever imagined. Um, that, and that really the driverless cars are just mobile extensions of buildings. Right. And buildings, and, and buildings And buildings become change. something totally new as well. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I almost think that the driverless car is the end of the, the idea of a, of, a, the, of a vehicular system and more the introduction of a new kind of room. Cool. Yeah. So listen, Mike, uh, our guest today on Visionaries has been Mike Silver. Uh, Mike, thanks for a fantastic discussion. Oh, and, fantastic. Yeah. And uh, we'll see everybody here next week. Great.